You're listening to a podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe. The conference took place at Shakespeare's Globe on the 12th and 13th of June, 2017. This podcast features a recording of Pal 2, performing lyric, poetry's music. The discussants were Catherine Bank from Royal Holloway, University of London, Simon Jackson from the University of Warwick, and David Lindley from the University of Leeds. The facilitator was Andrew Hatfield from the University of Sussex. Hatfield Spencer and Music. And the three uh, speakers we've got are Katie Bank from Royal Holloway, Simon Jackson from the University of Warwick, and David Lindley from, from the University of Leeds. And we're going to sort of think about Spencer very much in terms of uh, both the musical performance of his poetry, the musical, the musical performances of it, and in terms of the musical elements within the poetry to sort of... Um, See, see what, um, what we can uh, manage to discuss about those elements. Everybody agrees that Spencer is largely um, a musical poet, but uh, that's almost <laughs> taken as a given without anybody ever doing that much exploration. I think the last book uh, is a book by, I think it's Derek Stevens in the 1960s, is the last actual complete book, unless would, would someone like to correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think it's been probably about 50 years since somebody wrote a, a complete book on Spencer music even though everybody agrees there's, a, there's, there's an important musical nature to what he does. So that's all I wanted to, wanted to kind of say by way of, by way of introduction. We'll, our three speakers will be exploring these, these issues, and I'll pick up with some questions, and then after that we'll open up for, 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 for wider discussion once we've listened to, to the actors um, reading the extracts that our, our three speakers are going to talk about. So first of all, we've got um, Katie Banks. Just really quickly, Andrew wanted me to touch on why um, I... Well, we kind of each chose pieces, but we kind of did. We did it through email. But um, I did choose one that was explicitly set to music um, in in the in 1601 by a little-known composer called, called Richard Carlton. Um, so that's the Not um, Under Heaven, which is one of the excerpts from Fairy Queen that they'll be reading in a moment. Um, and I chose it just because I feel like we should have one example of something that was explicitly set to music. Vicar composer Richard Carlton set four stanzas of Fairy Queen to music in his 1601 publication, Madrigals to Five Voices. The two stanzas set by Carlton we are looking at today, taken as standalone verse, considered com- consider common tropes regarding the power of beauty over the rational minds of men. One might say it makes sense to set this text to music, as, like beauty, music was also viewed as having a curious, persuasive, and sometimes dangerous power to override judgment an idea that will be familiar to many of you. Briefly, I'd like to draw your attention to the connection between musical metaphor and concerns regarding the reliability of sense perception and what happens when this relationship is enacted or experienced through musical performance. I'll begin with two of the most common poetic tropes used in conjunction with music to discuss metaphysical ideas, beauty and sleep, figures that could confound even the most rational minds and move subjects to action. I'm sure many of you are aware of the significant poetic conflation between music and dreaming in this period due to their shared ability to fool or mislead the mind and therefore doubt what is certain. It is often through music and dreams that Shakespeare and Spencer create spaces like Fairyland or Prospero's Island, places in which writers could explore our very understanding of reality and the reliability of our sense perception in discerning it. In one of the readings from Fairy Queen in this session, Red Cross is enchanted by a dream dream from Morpheus. And though pleasant sounds accompany or indeed make up the spell, all he experiences are silent lies. 
as in Shakespeare's Tempest, the Tempest's music and musical sound, whether a natural or unnatural phenomenon, play a major role in the plot, moving subjects to thought and action. In this passage from Fairy Queen with Morpheus, the sounds of the enchantment are certainly musical, a drizzle of rain, the murmuring of wind like a swarm of bees, even if not man-made music. Writing in the introduction to his 1609 collection of song, A Musical Dream, composer Robert Jones pondered, what are dreams but airy possessions and several airs breathing harmonious whisperings? This punny phrase reflects an understanding, poetic or otherwise, of both airs as in song, which is also called an air, and dreams as airy, intangible materials that nevertheless affect us greatly. Though physical beauty can have a more tangible manifestation, it is still worth contemplating how meaning changes in a musicalized performance of a text that addresses these metaphysical issues, such as Carlton's setting of Spencer's text. In my estimation, one of the main opportunities given to us um, through a musical performance of a poetic text, particularly one rife with metaphysical questioning, is that musical performance allows for an experiential embodiment of the very issues of sense perception, ration, passion, and action cogitated in the texts. After all, performance is a sensory activity, a visceral experience that necessarily engages sense perception and often the passions, both for historical subjects and us. We would argue with the assertion that there is nearly a universal yet ineffable quality about music and that it moves us, little more understood today than it was in the 16th century. As George Wither wrote in 1619, Yea, the inarticulate sounds have in themselves, I know not what secret power, to move the very affections of men's souls according to the quality of their strains. Perhaps this is why musical metaphor is incredibly useful when writing about similarly ineffable mysteries, like the power of the passions, because the metaphorical presence of music invokes experiential understanding between subjects, while retaining the distance mandated by the lack of understanding of the mechanics of emotion. Similarly, when an experience of a metaphysical text um, includes music's phys physical presence, it invokes comparable meaning or wonder even without the semantic musical metaphor, as I, as I would argue might be the case in Spencer's Not Under Heaven, as set by Carlton. It is understandable why composers so often set to, to music texts that consider concepts like dreams and beauty's power over the rational mind as a real musical setting adds in time experience of music's secret power to semantic content, viscerally drawing attention to the sensory aspect of the experience and the related metaphorical questions at hand. In musical performance that textually addresses sensation explicitly, the words almost inevitably draw attention to the ephemeral somatic experience of the music, revealing a meaning that is the product of the text's inexperience. It is possible that a phenomenological lens may help us better understand the value of musicalizing texts, particularly poems that address the fundaments of human consciousness. But in order for this to be explored, music and words should be approached as experience rather than as a static object. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about the epithalamion, and I want to um, pay attention to the insistent repetitions of Spencer's refrains to ask how we might listen to them. And although that's not perhaps explicitly musical, I think it is bound up with ideas of music. So refrains are, of course, um, we're familiar with them from music, but also uh, many of Spencer's contemporaries 
um, think very self-consciously about echo as a musical effect. So I'm thinking um, the most uh, famous example is Monteverdi's um, Audi Celum in the Vespers of 1611, where one singer sings a line and hidden away at the back of the church, another singer responds. So it's a, it's a specifically musical <coughs> effect. So we're familiar, familiar with echo as acoustic phenomenon in which sound is reinforced and perpetuated. Another way of putting this is, uh, and one that Spencer uses to great effect in the epithalamian, is to say that echo is a kind of variation on a theme. With each variation, the refrain is reinforced and amplified. And there's also, I think, proleptic anticipation. You know, um, we know that the echo is going to come back after um, the, the, the pattern has been set up. Pay attention also to the sing-ring-rhyme that issues in his echoing burden, enacting most explicitly the acoustic effect of echo within the refrain, not only sonically, but I think also conceptually. The ring is both the reverberation of the sound created by the singing poet's voice and the eternal circle of the marriage band um, representing the anticipated union of the lovers. In this way, the poem itself becomes a kind of enclosed space, creating the prerequisites for reverberation. So here we have time as a kind of moving image of eternity. But there's another way of hearing this echo too, and as Spencer's refrain is heard again, each time it rings the changes. We pay attention to its changeability instead of just its repetitiveness. Is this then amplification or a form of change and decay over time? Is this the marriage band being reinforced or slowly eroded? So while echoes perpetuate sound and concepts, they also witness to their attenuation and decay. They anticipate, but they anticipate something that's fading and dying away. And I'm thinking here of those uh, the way the refrain changes in the last seven stanzas um, to the negative, the, word, the woods no more as answer, nor are echo rings, a kind of dying away that happens through the course of the poem. Think again of rhyme, which, like acoustic reflection, returns that imperfect, delayed copy of the original. Rhyme can, of course, make a form easy to memorise, but it can also make the specific content or meaning of the words indistinct. Remember, think about the way a jingle sort of um, wears away the kind of meaning of, of the words. So Echo both sustains a memory of the original and blurs its exact contours. The marriage is recalled, but its original form changes and perhaps fades as time progresses. And I wonder if this might help us think about the way uh, Spencer brings in that odd reference to Orpheus at the end of the first stanza. So Orpheus did for his own bride, so I unto myself alone will sing, the woods shall to me answer, and my echo ring. Is this the fading of uh, that tragic marriage? Or is it the fading of the musician's legendary fabled power? Whichever way we take it, I think, here, in contrast to a kind of um, sense of time circling round in eternity, Time is figured as decay, change, and the realm of flux. 
So just to conclude, I'd like to suggest that a way of thinking about um, echo in this manner is figuring both time in its eternal and changeable aspects, uh, its fixity and flux, helps us better to understand Spencer's echoing refrains in the epithalamium. Are its repetitions reinforcements or erosions? Well, they're both at the same time. And this is crucial, since, like marriage, echo holds flux and stability in suspense. And here I'm thinking of um, Lernstein's comment that the central problem of the epithalamium is the adjustment of the momentous to the continuous, the occasional to the uh, enduring. This tension is key, I think, to understanding the claim with which Spencer concludes the poem and cuts off his refrains, cuts off that echo, describing the epithalamium as short time's endless monument. Its echoing refrains are tied to the moment, resonate with the past, and anticipate the future, witnessing both to the immediacy of that present moment and distorting temporal progression as it stimulates and reactivates memory. Right, I want to talk about something very simple. Enjambement, or enjambment, whichever way you prefer to pronounce it, both are allowed by the OED. Um, but that, that's where, where we'll get to, and I hope the, the readings will, uh, will raise the questions I want to pose. Because in the performance of both music and poetry, a performer searches for the through line, the shaping of the musical phrase or of languages, sentences, in the way they think best sustains the underlying structures of the music and the phrasal system, and thereby offer the audience the expressiveness of which the piece or the poem is capable. Well, that's one sense of line, but anyone who's heard students struggle as you ask them to read a poem out loud, or anyone who's tried, as I have to coax an amateur choir to give shape to one of Bach's vocal lines, <laughs> will know how difficult it can be to convey exactly what one means by line, a sense of line in this, in this context. And it's not just typical parameters. One does wonder about half the BBC announcers who appear not to know how syntax works. But anyway, that's the second problem. And obviously, that's one meaning of line, but in today's context, the other meaning of line, a line of verse. I think this session tomorrow, later on today devoted to line. I'm sorry if I'm going to say some of the things you wanted to say, but um, we'll see. Um, <laughs> What interests me is the way in which these two different senses of line interact when one attempts actually to perform Spencer's verse, either out loud or in the mind's inner ear, a much underused faculty these days, I think, but one which I'm sure for Elizabethan was habitual, the sense of poetry as, if not read aloud, about to be read aloud, seems to me, a given. Now, I want to focus particularly on those moments when the line of the syntax and the poetic line are in some kind of tension, the moment of enjambment. Now, Spencer isn't the most adventurous of metrists. The great bulk of his work after the Shepherd's Calendar is in verse of great regularity. Jeff Dolvin, writing in the uh, handbook, claims that he is the most consistently regular pentameter poet the language has ever seen. 
And he notes that, I think rightly, that Spencer rarely attempts imitation of the speaking voice in the disrupted rhythms of Sidney's Astrophil or Dunn's uh, lyrics. He hardly experiments, again, after the Shepherd's Calendar, with varied line lengths, um, which were inspired, of course, in part by uh, the importation of Italian music and its accompanying verse forms. Uh, I don't think Spencer is a musical poet in the sense, or the same sense, as Thomas Campion or George Herbert are profoundly musical poets. But then, in the Epithalamian, the poet, as we've just heard, does emphasise his intent to imitate Orpheus, the legendary singer, and his refrain lines end with the ringing of the echo. Um, when the echo song made it to England, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, could he have heard echo songs? I think they're a little bit later. But anyway, to say that Spencer's verse is metrically regular is not to minimise his skill. And particularly important in engendering variety is his use of enjambement. And it's the way this poetic line interacts with the other sense of line that, that matters. Um, was an important instrument of variety, as, Spencer, as Milton recognised when he talked of the, the sense variously drawn out from one verse into another in Paradise Lost. And given Spencer's general metrical regularity, it's particularly important device for him to avoid monotony. But the question remains, in a way, for the actors, uh, how does one perform enjambement? Well, in singing hymns, most Anglican congregations, if they notice an enjambement, will pointedly bulge or crescendo to emphasise their recognition of the enjambement. Think of Crimmond, you know, the Lord's my shepherds are not one. He make it down to lie in pastures, where they bulge through the end of the line. Um, as an organist of, of sorts, and a record player of sorts, playing instruments which have little or no control over volume to determine shape. Phrasing is a matter of articulation, of minute gaps, minute breaks, to delineate the shape of the musical line. And I think, to some extent, the same is true for the performance of poetry. Uh, some considerable time ago, um, an issue of the magazine Agenda was devoted to poetic rhythm, offered a questionnaire to poets um, of which one question was, how do you regard the line end? Auden's response was typical. A pause should always be made at the end of a line. Longer, if there is punctuation at its end. Shorter, if there is enjambement without punctuation. And he was followed by most of the poets who answered that question. Cicely Berry, the uh, RSC voice guru, um, wrote, had this to say about actors reading poetry. Sorry. Um, I think actors are very frightened of tackling poetry. I'm sure that too or not. Feeling that there is some sort of mystique about it. If this is the case, one of two things may happen. Either you are over-reverent about it and the poetry voice happens, or in rebelling against the poetry voice, we ignore the form and go only for the logical sense of the poetry sounds like prose. 
Now, what counts as the poetry voice itself is historically conditioned. Gilgood sounds distinctly dated now, though for myself, as someone who in a student questionnaire once received the comment, please ask Professor Lindley not to read poetry like that. <laughs> I probably have more sympathy with the poetry voice than many. And I guess that even Gielgud sounded pretty, would have sounded pretty informal to a Victorian audience. So the point I'm really trying to make is a very, very simple one. That enjambment is crucial to the sound of the verse, of the sound as, as we listen to it. It is, in a sense, musical in that it's making demands upon one sense of phrasing, one sense of line. And the collision between the rhyme-defined poetic line and the sense-defined line of meaning needs, in performance, to be delicately negotiated. <laughs> Uh, this is the Epithalamian, uh, stanzas five and six. Wake now, my love, awake, for it is time. The rosy morn long since left Tython's bed, already to her silver coach to climb, and Phoebus skins to show his glorious head. Hark how the cheerful birds do chant their lays and carol of love's praise. The merry lark, her matin, sings aloft. The thrush replies. The mavis descant plays, the owl shrills, the ruddock warbles soft, so goodly all agree with sweet consent to this day's merriment. Ah, oh, my dear love, why do ye sleep thus long, when meter were that ye should now awake, to await the coming of your joyous make, and hearken to the bird's love-learned song, the dewy leaves among? For they of joy and pleasance to you sing, that all the woods them answer and their echo ring. My love is now awake out of her dreams, and her fair eyes like stars that dimmed were with darksome cloud now show their goodly beams more bright than Hesperus his head doth rear. Come now, ye damsels, daughters of delight, help quickly her to dight, but first come ye fair hours which were begot in Jove's sweet paradise of day and night, which do the seasons of the year allot, and all that ever in this world is fair do make and still repair. And ye three handmaids of the Cyprian queen, the which to still adorn her beauty's pride, help to adorn my beautifulest bride. And as ye her array, still throw between some graces to be seen. And as ye used to Venus, to her sing, the whiles the woods shall answer, and your echo ring. Uh, fairy queen, again, uh, Morpheus asleep. He making speedy way through spursed air, and through the world of waters wide and deep, to Morpheus' house doth hastily repair, amid the bowels of the earth full steep, and lo, where dawning day doth never peep, his dwelling is. There Tethys his wet bed doth ever wash, and Cynthia still doth steep in silver dew his ever drooping head, while sad night over him her mantle black doth spread whose double gates he findeth locked fast, the one fair-framed of burnished ivory, the other all with silver overcast, and wakeful dogs before them far do lie, 
watching to banish care their enemy, who oft is wont to trouble gentle sleep. By them, the sprite doth pass in quietly, and unto Morpheus comes, whom drowned deep in drowsy fit he finds, of nothing he takes keep, and more, to lull him in his slumber soft, a trickling stream from high rock tumbling down, and ever drizzling rains upon the loft, mixed with a murmuring wind, much like the sound of swarming bees did cast him in a swoon. No other noise, nor people's troublous cries, as still are wont to annoy the wall in town, might there be heard. But careless quiet lies, wrapped in eternal silence, far from enemies. The messenger, approaching to him, spake, but his wast words returned to him in vain. So sound he slept, that naught mought him awake. Then rudely he him thrust and pushed with pain, where it he gan to stretch. But he again shook him so hard that forced him to speak. As one then in a dream, whose drier brain is tossed with troubled sighs and fancies weak, he mumbled soft, but would not all his silence break. Uh, and I have the fairy queen again. <laughs> uh, not to music by Carlton on this occasion. Not under heaven so strongly doth allure the sense of man and all his mind possess as beauty's lovely bait that doth procure great warriors of their rigour to repress and mighty hands forget their manliness. Drawn with the power of a heart-robbing eye and wrapped in fetters of a golden tress that can with melting pleasance mollify their hardened hearts, inured to blood and cruelty. So Willem learned that mighty Jewish swain, each of whose locks did match a man in might to lay his spoils before his layman's train. So also did that great Etian knight, for his love's sake his lion's skin undight, and so did warlike Antony neglect the world's whole rule for Cleopatra's sight. Such wondrous power hath women's fair aspect to captive men, and make them all the world reject. Well, I think um, the actors have certainly proved one thing, that they're certainly not afraid of reading poetry about, <laughs> unlike, unlike many others. And I can, of course, reveal uh, um, the answer to another mystery, because David and me have filled that in, telling you not to read your poetry in that way. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you didn't get students telling you that you needed to seek professional advice about your wardrobe, which is <laughs> <laughs> what I've suffered from. <laughs> But I thought I thought what was um, I, I, I thought perhaps in, in many ways uh, the, the 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 question I wanted to come back to was one that David asked, and that's about whether Spencer was act is actually a musical poet or not. A lot was made when the excavations were done at Kilcolman that a broken lute peg was found, and whether <laughs> whether this was a, a sign that Spencer and his family spent their evenings, you know, playing the lute and singing, or or how how, the, how they would have entertained themselves out on out on the Munster plantation. Um, but the question of whether Spencer is actually a musical poet or not seems to speak to what all all three three of you were talking about, where you were talking about. Um, 
dreams and their and, and their relationship to, to, to Spencer and you were talking particularly about refrains and genre more. And whether the question is, I suppose, whether these are things that imitate music or whether they are actual um, examples of poetry that has a much closer relationship to music. And it might be something that we might want to tie towards a lot of research which has done, um, which has suggested that far more poetry, um, far more things were read aloud or come out of an oral culture than we've, than we've thought about. And I suppose that's the sort of central question that I wanted to pose to all of you before I throw things open to the audience. And that is, to what extent is Spencer um, imitating musical uh, devices, musical effects in his poetry? And to what extent are they really informed by uh, real musical um, performances What's the relationship between the two, perhaps? I don't know if any of you want to, uh, you know, from what you've read of Spencer, reflect on, 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 on these. Well, I think it's certainly possible for a poet to be, as it were, seen musical in the sense that the, the, the poetry is euphonious or whatever we mean by that metaphor of musical. But it's equally possible, as A.E. Hausman being the most famous example, to hate people setting his poetry to music and to himself say, um, he wasn't musical, even though his poetry appealed to composers in, in bucket loads. Um, so I think one has to be very careful. I mean, I think a poet like George Herbert is profoundly musical. Um, but I, for me, that shows in the delicate manipulation of line length and rhyme against rhythm and so on. Um, I think it's possible, as Northrop Frye ages ago argued to, to say that Don is musical, even though there was barely a musical language at his time that could set his verse. Um, but I don't know what the others think. I just think Spencer is, is very good, you know, and very mellifluous. But that isn't the same as being specifically musical to me. Being musical is such a difficult thing to define because it is such a subjective thing. Even um, to two performers today, one one could one critic could say, "Oh, his performance was so musical, it was beautiful." He's like, "Oh no, it was dull. It was you know." So it's you know very difficult now to uh, attribute musicality to something, let alone um, historically. Um, that said, I think we can know for sure that that music would have been a part. Of his life. So, regardless of any particular talents he did or did not have, um, yeah. musical, uh, amateur music making was a very, very pervasive thing in the aisles at this time. Um, so, I think it, it would be safe to say um, that music was probably a part of his life, regardless of how good or good, not good he was at it. And also, to answer the thing you mentioned about echo songs, um, which were kind of a fairly common thing. Um, I'm guessing that Lassus's would have been here, which was a fairly well, so yeah. it's an antiphonal thing where you have one louder choir, well, presumably lyre choir saying something and then a little echo in a second choir, um, and a lot of composers wrote in this style, um, but Lassus was fairly well known in England at this time, so I would guess that if anyone's... He could have heard, he could have heard that one. And, and then there's also poetry that is, I, I presume, descends from the musical... Uh, example of that, yeah. that that has been imported, yes. that, that is contemporary. I mean, what I would say uh, to, to that question about musicality is to echo what uh, both David and Kate have said. Um, music plays, I think, an important part in his poetry, um, though I'm not sure we're talking about someone who is envisaging his poetry as set to music. Um, what struck me as I was reading the Epithalamium is how 
So I was obviously paying attention to echoes and those sorts of reflections, but I was thinking how it also plays off visual reflection as well. You know, you have this kind of uh, mirrors and, and thinking about how those sorts of visual reflections are very different from oral reflections. And that brings us back, I think, to what Will was saying about the playing of the graphic and the performative. I think that's, that sort of syncopation is there in the poetry, those thoughts are informing his thoughts. I was just wondering, or I'd like to hear from, from our actors, from the readers, what you think about that question of musicality. And you both nodded when I said Gil Good sounds out of date <laughs> these days. <laughs> but you did. You did. Yeah. I, think, I think, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if he does. He's just, he's just speaking it. He's one of those people you listen to and you think, oh, thank goodness, somebody's actually making sense. Because a lot of, a lot of the way that I think Shakespeare's spoken today is, is, is sort of throwing sense out the door. <laughs> Occasionally, sorry. Um, fast and hope. Well, I think so, yeah. And, and a bit like the newsreaders. I like what you said about the newsreaders, because that annoys, that annoys me hugely. Um, but so I, I just think, you know, sometimes um, I've heard rounds of applause given in, in, in the yard to an actor who comes out and delivers a speech and you understand every word he says, and suddenly the ground goes, oh, amazing, we understood. Oh, brilliant. So he makes perfect sense. So, yeah. Um, I was, I was going to say, but before, but really before you, you start, re reading this was, felt very like reading um, a, a story. Um, and, and I think that that's what I was thinking of when you were just discussing the musicality, was going, going way back to something, um, you know, much earlier where music, where music is involved in storytelling, so the world of the troubadours or the troubadour, and, and certainly this was very like reading something of Maria France, but she doesn't write poetry, she writes prose. But, but just the complicated nature of it and the descriptive, the, the, you know, the, um, the, the descriptions that are used are, are much more like that very early form of, of storytelling, which is absolutely about speaking, and she's unusual for writing it. Um, so, I, I, and I, it's the question I've had before is whether, whether music whether the troubadours didn't only sing or speak, but whether the music sort of accompanied them and 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 gave an idea of stuff. It was the, the bit about the swarming bees, which of course is really beautiful. You want to give what a musical accompaniment would would do in the background. So the musical accompaniment to that would be, you know, or give, giving the idea of, of a character's state of mind. And you sort of want to give that at the same time with your voice. So it seems like something that has to be has to be performed. And then, then you're you're doing both. You're doing your own musical accompaniment and you're, you're telling the story, I suppose. Yeah. Matthew, <laughs> I've been since you said that I've been thinking about it for the last sort of twenty five minutes. And there's certainly in, in when you're performing Shakespeare or, or Marlowe or anything of the time as a drama, you you've, there's this balance of when the play was written, when you're when you're performing it, and trying to find something in the middle of that that kind of honours both what's on the page and who's in the crowd. Mm -hmm. Because as you say, you're either going to make it sound brilliant, but mean nothing, or mean everything, but have absolutely no structure or, or rhythm to it. And so you're trying to find the balance of the two, and the interpretation of that is something that's changed over time. So going from Gilgood to Olivier to modern days is a completely, you know, listening to Olivier do a Hamlet speech is very pleasant, but isn't terribly exciting all the time. <laughs> Sorry if that offends um, And uh, certainly as someone who, I don't have a musical background, but I do know actors that, that play instruments, that sing, that requires that. 
involved in that sort of thing, and they do find elements in, uh, in verse speaking and in poetry in their musical backgrounds that helps to inform the way that they speak it, and they, they identify these factors that someone such as myself might not find. Yeah, uh, could I just ask, when, you see, what I'm trying to, to wonder about was this sense of, strongly does of your sense of man, uh, in one readings, third one there. Not under heaven so strongly does allure the mind of man. Now, what do you do with that enjambement? And actually, what you did was, was read straight, straight through for the sense, which yes. is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But what about then to poets like Auden and all the rest who say, now, there should be some kind of line end mark. And Cicely Berry actually says the same of Shakespearean black verse. Which, of course, in his late career gets, uh, I mean, en genre is habitual. Um, but she tried, well, at least in the book, to have actors somehow mark the end of the line, even when it's run on. I mean, I don't know how you do it, but uh, I, I uh, think, let's I think try this out, shall we? Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know it's there, though. I mean, the point is that you, you as the, the actor knows it's there, and I think you can barely help but have something. I think if you. I think the most important thing is that you tell the story, and 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 I I assume there's something in your subconscious that sort of clicks in a little line end, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't want to to put a big old marker in and, and not then have somebody who has never listened to this before not understand it, because that would be. Why don't you try it? <laughs> I'll try, try it. Yeah. For what it's worth, before you do um, in, in the music, <laughs> um, the composer does have. A, a, a break of sorts there, it, it cadences, and then one of the voices continues with the next line, um, just one beat after the previous one ended, so it's not a full, like, ta-da, break, but it's a one phrase, breathe, next phrase, for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's often often the way um, in Mantegalian setting, isn't it, that the, the, you get that overlap of voices and the avoidance of any firm cadences that, uh, that helps that. Doesn't it also um, depend on when you read the line, whether you detect that there is a double syntax going on and that informs your decision about whether to emphasise a pause or not? So that if it requires you to go straight through the enjambment to get the sense, you do that but otherwise you might want to make a slight pause in order to show that you have two senses operating at one time. Well, I think that's, that's really what I was kind of... Well, should we, should we just try a couple of yeah. different, different types of reading? Then, then I will um, uh, throw everything open to questions. But I think, I think, um, I think it might just, um, just... Before we have the discussion, perhaps we could try two different readings to see and see, and see how we, we think about them. So I'm going to put a little... A little <laughs> yeah. I say, think of Bach of Bach phrase. Not under heaven, so strongly doth allure the sense of man, and all his mind possess as beauty's lovely bait. Yeah. See, it's interesting because there's a difference there. The yes. first line has no punctuation, the second one does. Yes. But the pause is the same. Yeah. And you could easily go, naught under heaven so strongly doth allure the sense of man and all his might possess as beauty's lovely bait. Mm. Which I think is what I tried to do the first right. time when I stood up and mm. read it. Yeah. Right. 
Because I, I think North Under Heaven so strong, North Under Heaven so strongly doth allure the sense of man, and all his mind possess. As beauty, it's a sort of building mm. thing. I did that quite badly. We could do the supermodern yes. version. <laughs> Nought under heaven so strongly doth allure the sense of man, and all his mind possess as beauty's lovely bait that doth procure great warriors. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's far too modern. <laughs> Then that's become prose. That, that, that yeah, be, exactly, exactly. That would be just a very There has to be something, because you can't deny the structure of what's in front of you on the page. And certainly as an actor, and I, I think you mentioned something where you, you don't eat, it's the subconscious thing when you read it, because it takes a millisecond for your eye to go from there to yeah. there. Yeah. So there's a little click in your head. So that you don't, you're not consciously pausing. But there's a little there's a little barrier here where it takes time I to think, travel. I think it, yeah, I do, and I also think it depends on the character. Just reading it there, yeah. I was like, if I'm gonna if I'm going to be uh, be <laughs> if I'm going to comment on it and say, not under heaven so strongly doth allure the sense of man, and all his mind possess as beauty's lovely. Then I'm then I'm giving it I'm giving yeah. a reading of it. If I was right. being more honest, I'd have probably headed to. Nought under heaven so strongly doth allure the sense of man, and all his mind. And, it, and it's what a little clink there. Yeah, yeah, probably. I don't think that can help. But I think yeah. that's what Matt's saying. You, you, that that because it's there. Yeah, and this is a it's huge. There for a reason. This is a huge thing. And this is what I've been thinking about. Is that in theatre you have you have an actor, you have a variety of director, and between you, you create a character that does the performance. And sometimes in you know in, in Elizabethan drama you have a character who's playing a character who does a performance as a character and it's, <laughs> it goes a bit mad. Whereas with poetry, you tend to have less characters. It's it's written in a specific way and it's meant to be received in a specific way. But it's interesting what the gentleman said about going back to the epithalamium, where it could be performed as a rap battle. <laughs> and I went back and read it, and you're exactly right. If you choose if two different characters who don't like each other are getting up and yeah, like. Yeah. Rapping is my strong yeah, point. Yeah. It, totally, <laughs> it, it totally works. Oh, it okay. totally works. I think I'll throw this over two questions. I think there's one coming there. Um, the Fairy Queen is constructed at the sort of macro level out of tension between Alaric and Norman so that each stanza is punctuated at the end by the Alexandrian. And the beauty of the question about enjambment is that it isolates the tension between those two impulses at the microscopic level. Um, which leads me to suggest that um, it is important to inflect the slightest pause or rise in pitch uh, to mark an enjambment, to mark, because you're not just reading the words, you're also reading the line, you're reading the verse form, and it too has to be given voice in, in tension with the narrative, because there's an extraordinarily subtle play between those two things that Spencer is singularly the master of. Mm -hmm. That's my <laughs> Well, it seems to me more like um, a rapper and a hype man. So, for example, <laughs> Buster Rhymes always has a particular guy on stage who will sort of go, here we go, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not really giving extra narrative. He's mm -hmm. what the other guys, the more important guys, just said so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think you. 
Oh, thank you, sorry. Um, I just want to say thanks very much for that. It struck me that um, from what Katie was saying, what Carlton has done, it's shown how there's musical opportunity to be made in observing precisely those kinds of tensions that David was talking about. Um, but that that's something that performers, if you're thinking about this performance, any kind of performance, reading or music, that you have to take some kind of interpretive stance on it. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, yeah. I'm struck very much by what David D. Miller is saying about the verse form itself needs voice and cut is because it is structurally and and, and sort of conceptually and metaphorically even uh, part of the work of the Fairy Queen. All of which makes me think about this point Katie was saying about thinking sonically. What happens if we think sonically and experientially? And you, both you and Simon pointed out very nice links between um, the way the um, uh, the way that I suppose this, this verse echo structures and that make us. Uh, think in terms of experience. And as Spencerians, we're quite happy thinking about the experience of the Fairy Queen in terms of its sort of moral allegorical work. We all have to be tempted in order to experience what's happening, in order to make the right choices, choose virtue, etc. But, and that's very simplistic, but we're not as used to thinking about experience and time and timing and pace and sensory absorption in some of the other Spencerian works. And I think that's something that has come out really nicely here. And I wanted to just sort of throw that out of it. What happens when we think a little more experientially and think sonically um, in the ways that Simon pointed out so beautifully in something like epithalamic where you've got this constant tension of flow and fixity. Well, I mean, Spencer's word for refrain is understong, isn't it? Yeah. So it's this idea of um, once you've got that refrain set up, you've got some, almost like uh, John Honda talks about this, I think, some sort of almost a polyphonic mm -hmm. kind of response what's there and I think what Katie was saying about the relationship between words and music and between sense as in meaning and sense as in sensation is is all playing in that idea of musical poetry right? yeah. Yeah. I think you were next um, can I ask Simon to comment on the idea that the thing that you um, point out in relation to epithalamium is developed and you know Brought, brought on in Prothalamian, mm -hmm. where he also has a refrain, uh, which it starts out as against the marriage day, which is not long, and then it becomes was not long. And you've got the whole thing about delay and Sweet Thames running softly till I end my song. Mm -hmm. And it's actually all about that thing fading out in a way, mm -hmm. in exactly the same way. And that he puts a join, in a sense, between those two pieces of work by the use of the refrain and the way the refrains work in those two poems. Yeah, and, and that, that sense of, of, of certainly the, the movement of time. I mean, Sweet Thames, but someone has also registered Sweet Time. You know, yeah. Time's run the softly. Um, that, that idea of movement being sort of embedded in uh, the flow of the poems, but also in the flow of the verse as well, and the, 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 the way in which the, the lines connect. There's a question over here, Derek. I just wanted to bring the issue of rhyme more centrally into the discussion, because I think any consideration of questions of enjambment, for instance, has to make a distinction between blank verse and rhyme verse. And just listening again to the Fairy Queen being read, even when there's no explicit pause at the end of the lines, the rhymes are doing it for you, and, and, and I think the reader must be aware that this is this is a point where there's a rhyme, or this word is going to be picked up later in, in the stanza. 
Um, so we, we need to think about Spencer's choice of a highly rhyming, you know, ma many rhymes in Spencerian stanza, um, which is a, a kind of music. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a heightening of the sonic properties of the language. Um, and it's a deliberate choice. Uh, Surrey had done the Aeneid translation in blank verse, so it was available as a model. But it's, it's hard to imagine a fairy queen in black verse. Um, so I think that needs to be one, one element in, in the picture of Spencer as a, as a musical poet. I think you, I think you were next, story. Thank you. Um, we just talked a bit about timing, um, but especially with regards to the Thelonian, I wonder about the placing of song. Um, you, you mentioned some of the song, the refrain is kind of an under song, but mm -hmm. it also forms in that the kind of final verses um, make it quite clear that the song is a kind of understudy almost for the ornament that it would support to be. So I wonder about how the song is kind of subordinated uh, or it's kind of placed in the stead of something. It's a sort of compensation yeah, for, exactly. for, for, for um, a proper wedding gift, yes. in a way. And I also wonder, yes, how not only the theatre voice or the poetry voice might require different timings, but also different placings of where the voice goes, not just what it does or how long it takes, but where, where it's put. Yeah. Then you go ahead. Okay, um, it, well, that, that makes the, the question of timing, I think, is quite important in terms of echo, because it those refrains are really spaced out. You know, each stanza is very long. For you, it, and it, it, although he calls it his echo, um, and it sort of performs the role of an echo in some sense, there's another sense in which it's not an echo at all. I mean, there is no. Uh, it, it's so kind of divorced from uh, each instantiation that it's not really an echo. And the echo is sort of extraneous to the refrain. Is that right? It, you know, it's the woods shall answer. They, that's where the real echo is. Um, I'm not sure if that's answered your question about sort of the ornament idea, except that it is something that's very intangible in the poem, I think. Um, yeah, well, I was going to go back to Derek's point about rhyme, which I think is absolutely right, of course. But I think the effect of enjambment, enjambment, is very different if it, I mean, for example, in, the, in this example, not under heaven so strongly doth the lure, the sense of man, where you don't know what the rhyme is, feels very different from as beauty's lovely bait that doth procure, and there's another run online, but you've heard, you've heard the rhyme. So the, those two effects are distinct, and I thank you for reminding us of that, that importance of, of, the, of the, that's where the game's rhyme plays. Here you go. Yeah. Well, so I'd just like to, to put forth that uh, I don't think that these effects are automatic. That um, uh, I don't think that there is an, that you know, even if you're not concentrating on it or if you're not sort of feeling for it, you're going to get uh, a pause at the end of a line automatically. I mean, after all, we're used to you know to ignoring the ends of lines when we read prose. We're pretty darn good at it at this point, I'd say. Um, but I'd go further to say that I, I think it's really possible to to make rhyme almost disappear as well. Um, if you if you just if you just sort of really just treat it like prose as you were as you were doing very well at the end, I think these are pretty delicate effects. Actually, I, I don't think we can we can assume that they are going to make themselves felt um, unless we attend to them. So that's my only point. Any response? Anyone? No, I think that's right. Okay, I'll take a couple more. But uh, okay, I think you were next. 
Um, I have a question that uh, relating to music and timing and humor. Um, we all experienced the effect when you were reading out from the Shepherd's Calendar of how lines which are not necessarily funny when we've read them over and over in uh, written text were suddenly humorous when performed, particularly because of the timing, because of the speed or the slowness of it, which is an effect that is shared with music. Often when performing a piece of music, you can make the same piece of music feel, have humor appear in it or not. I was recently uh, with a group performing some of Thomas Weeks' pieces and Cease Sorrows Now has a line, uh, low care hath now consumed my carcass quite which, depending on how you perform the maladies that come under that line, can be very serious lament, or it can be so over-the-top a lament <laughs> that the audience starts chuckling when you are on the fifth repetition. There <laughs> has now consumed my carcass quite, which is, again, invisible in the written text. So I wonder whether, when we ask the question of whether this is a musical poet, we can look through it and find other instances <clears throat> where the timing of thinking of it as performance, whether read aloud or imagining in your head, whether timing brings humor to things that 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 clearly has intentionality to be funny, but that sort of only materializes its humor when it's given timing, which is something that performance, whether imagined performance by imagining the words in your head or performance aloud would give. I don't know whether the actors want to comment on timing and humor bringing yeah, it's a tricky one, and it, again, it goes back to who's who's performing it, who's reading it, and what their style of comedy is, and, and it is a lot in the timing, um, and it really it's a cumulative effect, and it's interesting this notion of letting the last line disappear, because when you listen to a piece of music, you don't let the music start to die and then skip to the next track or something that, you, know, um, you, you listen to that last note die or you know fade fall whatever and similarly in this there's, there's a notion of building accumulating towards something so you have to get those last few lines very clear in order to make what's come before really land so it all it paints a picture all together and within that, if there is comedy, the the notes that the notes of comedy that worked earlier can be brought back later on because the audience has learned what works and what you know when a certain actor does a certain pause, you learn to expect something's coming or something you know that is, and then then what they might do is actually not very funny because the pause is there. You've been programmed. And also, but I think importantly with that, the pause could be different. I mean, the, the one thing that um, it depends on the music allows, because because the music has a, a, a written rhythm or time which, which could be pushed and pulled around. Um, if it's some, something choral, you've got somebody controlling uh, the pushing and pulling around, and that's one person's... You, you know, the individual singers can't do that. As a, as a speaker, you, you find your timing will change from one performance to the next. You don't decide. You very, very rarely decide on a comic timing. I mean, you know, if you've got anything that's going on, you, you know a basic rhythm, you know, sort of one, two, three, and that's going to probably be funny and it's best if you don't put a pause in between. But there could be a, there could be a line which suddenly, depending on the audience, you just, you edge the pause out, yeah. you put a slightly different emphasis, maybe you, you come in straight away and, and you judge your audience, which is not something you have as much power on with music because the timing's generally given to you. I'm not suggesting it can't be played with. 
But I think that's something that means it, it, it's absolutely performative. It's between the speaker, the actor, and the audience as to what makes that funny. And, and both Matt and I in this building do a lot of readings where we, we, we genuinely, we've gone through it once and we've never done it before. And you suddenly find in a moment there's an uproarious laugh because you've just hit something exactly where you thought it should be. It's not been directed, it's not been planned, but you have the control over that. And that makes something funny. And we're going to discuss this basically explicitly in the research workshop tonight. So. <laughs> and on that note, I think, I think we're, I'm very anxious for, to make sure you have a proper lunch break. <laughs> everyone has worked very hard. So perhaps we can thank everyone for it. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe.